Thanks, Maria. Now let's pray as we prepare to consider this part of God's Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us and we ask that you would uh, help us to see Jesus for who he is, see ourselves for who we are. Uh, may you challenge us where we need to be challenged, may you encourage us where we need to be encouraged, that we may grow in Christ-likeness. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, as Kaz said at the beginning, we're in the second week of our uh, summer teaching series, looking at the theme of mission in Matthew's Gospel, in particular chapters 10, 11 and 12. And if you were here last week, uh, you may recall that, you know, central to carrying out our mission for Jesus is the reality of acceptance or rejection. Like, that's the, two, that's the dynamic that's involved, that some will embrace Jesus, and that means embrace those who proclaim him, and others will reject Jesus. And so they will reject those who proclaim him. And it's this particular aspect of mission that carries on into the passage, uh, which resonates through, you might say, the passage that Maria just read. This, this theme of rejection and of, a, of a opposition, more particularly of, of persecution. Persecution, that question of Christian persecution, it can be a contentious one. What it looks like, whether it even exists. And our thinking about Christian persecution is directed by all sorts of assumptions. When I was at Bible college 10 years ago, I joined the persecuted church prayer group. And by its very nature, that group assumes that there is a persecuted church and a non-persecuted church. Is that true? Does that difference exist? Is that the difference between living in a country like Australia and living in an Islamic nation or in communist China? Or is persecution just a complex that Christians have developed? A way of delegitimizing those who have legitimate critiques of Christians or of the church or of a way of just undermining people's robust objections to the claims of the gospel. We call persecution, it's like calling a personal foul. These are all questions that surround this idea of persecution. And the passage before us does speak to these questions. As Jesus commissions his disciples, he calls them personally, he sets before them not just what he wants them to achieve in his name, but the challenge that lies before them. And he doesn't pull his punches. But as we saw last week, while they are commissioned to a particular mission, there's also instructions and advice and guidance for us as his present-day disciples. So what does he tell his disciples about persecution? Well, the first thing he tells them is that persecution is real. He speaks of the reality of persecution and he wants his disciples to know that. He begins in verse 17, Uh, verse 16, sorry, with several striking images. He says, look, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as serpents and as harmless as doves. That's a striking image. Sheep among wolves are in constant danger. They have no capacity for self-defense. You can imagine the disciples finding this image, the vulnerability of it, quite confronting but they're also to be as shrewd as serpents. They're not just sheep, they're also shrewd as serpents. 
And so Jesus says, yes, my disciples, they are inherently vulnerable, but they're not naive. They're not naive. And so Jesus says in verse 17, beware of people. Beware of people. And yet at the same time that he calls his disciples to be as shrewd as serpents, he also says be as harmless as doves. Harmless? The word here, harmless, is literally unmixed. It means pure. It's about transparency and being blameless. And it's this balance that Jesus says his disciples need to strike between, between shrewdness and blamelessness, between prudence and purity, if they're to fulfill and to survive their mission to the world. And he speaks of these wolves that they are being sent out among like sheep. And initially, Jesus is probably referring to the Jewish leadership of the day, the chief priests and the Pharisees who, who orchestrated his own death a couple of years after this. But as the gospel has gone out around the world, so have the wolves in that sense. And so the same balance of, of purity and prudence is needed by Jesus' followers today if they are to fulfill his mission. And we are, we are a church that seeks, I think, to strike that balance. We do seek to be pure, to be blameless in that sense, in our conduct. That's why our church has a commitment to things like safe ministry, so that when we are working with children and vulnerable people, they are as safe as they can be. Why our church has a commitment to governance, like we have an annual general meeting where our financials, uh, people can look over them. Blameless, so that no legitimate attack can lead the way to something more sinister. But also prudent, shrewd in our engagement with the world. And I think we do this in a number of ways. We do, this, is, this is why we make strategies about our mission. We don't just do it randomly, we think purposefully about it. There's, there's a shrewdness to that, about how we'll do ministry and, and whom we'll employ on staff and what sort of leaders we'll raise up and what areas of ministry. This kind of dictates what we do and don't put on our website or on our, share on our Facebook page. Things that might distract from our primary mission of putting Jesus and his life, saving death and resurrection before people. And that same goes for us individually as Christians. Jesus is telling his disciples, he's telling you and me to strike that balance between being blameless and being shrewd, being pure and being prudent. And it is a fine line to walk. It's a fine line to walk between, being, between what we might call careful faithfulness, which is what Jesus describes here, and what we might also call faithless carefulness. We're never really prepared to step out in any way for Jesus, in a way that's going to expose us. But it's a line Jesus calls his disciples to walk. Because in a sense, it's the front line of keeping at bay the persecution of a hostile world. But then Jesus goes on to depict in more detail the sort of persecution his disciples are going to face, what's going to come. He reminds them that this persecution won't just remain at the level of Jewish authorities that they will also be brought before governors and kings because of him, to bear witness 
to them and to the nations. And perhaps most soberingly, this persecution will extend to family units. Siblings betraying one another, parents their children, children their parents, even to death. It's a sober picture and it's a, it's a quite an all-encompassing one, isn't it? And the kind of all-encompassing nature of this is captured in verses 22 and 23, where Jesus says, you will be hated by everyone because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be delivered. When they persecute you in one town, escape to another. For I assure you, you will not have covered the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now, we don't have time to go into it deeply here, uh, but when Jesus refers to the coming of the Son of Man, I believe he isn't speaking about his coming in glory at the end of all things. But he's referring to his resurrection and his, his kind of ascension to the right hand of the Father. That is when Jesus received all power and authority, like the Son of Man does in Daniel's prophecy from the ancient of days in Daniel chapter 7. And it's telling in terms of kind of determining what Jesus is referring to, that when Jesus sends his disciples out in Matthew 28, right at the end of Matthew's Gospel, when the risen, soon-to-be-ascended Jesus sends his disciples out on mission, what does he say? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It has been given to me. And so that means that, as we saw last week, the primary mission in view here, as Jesus is talking, is that pre-resurrection mission to the lost sheep of Israel, that Jesus himself is undertaking and that his disciples are undertaking if they so choose. And the reality of undertaking this mission, Jesus says, is that persecution will affect them. It will constantly affect them. What Jesus says here is also helpful, I think, for us in thinking about what persecution is and what persecution isn't what it is and what it isn't. The 19th century American philosopher, a guy called Ralph Waldo Emerson, once wrote, let me never fall into the vulgar mistake of dreaming that I am persecuted whenever I am contradicted. I know what the impulse is like to be contradicted and to want to call persecution. But persecution is not contradiction. Strong and even even aggressive as that contradiction may be, as that disagreement may be. We have all experienced contradiction before around Christian things. We've, we see it in the media, discussed. Maybe you've experienced it among your family or your friends. And that can be difficult. That may be very difficult, but that's not in itself persecution. The word translated here, persecute, it literally means pursue. It has to do with deliberate, focused, sustained chasing of someone, almost like hunting. It's this pursuit that will see the disciples having to flee from one town to another, not just because they encounter contradiction. They are pursued from one town to another to another. And it's this pursuit that sees Christians today fleeing from one place to another. And while Jesus is referring to the mission especially to the disciples, 
he's mentioned, remember, he mentions in verse 18 that persecution will also come from the nations. And that alerts us to the fact that this experience will not be restricted to the 12 disciples in the present, just in this particular mission. And sure enough, that is an experience that we see the apostles having time and time again in the book of Acts, especially Paul, chased from one town to another, pursued, persecuted. And it's certainly an experience that Christians continue to have in places like, like Yemen and Pakistan and China and North Korea and Iran and the list goes on. Now in the historically Christianized West where we live, we've largely not been pursued like this. We've not experienced this sort of persecution. Thank God. It's a mercy. If anything, Christian values and the activity of believers have been kind of woven into the culture and upheld in one way or another. But I I think most of us in this room are aware that that's not entirely the case anymore. That there are changes, societal changes, cultural, and now even legal changes that are starting to feel a bit more targeted. And either way, we have to remember, we have to be aware, we have to be wise to the fact that we are not just going to be embraced, perhaps like we once were, if we hold to Jesus' teaching. And certainly, in legislation that has been passed recently around Australia, some of it, in some of its particular focus, seems almost to target Christian believers. And so while it sounds almost unbelievable for me to say, it is possible that in my lifetime, in Australia, a Christian minister could be imprisoned for teaching the basic truths of the Bible. That is, subject to a criminal charge brought by the state. Maybe not a Christian minister, just any Christian believer. It's possible now, even if that horizon seems far away still. And the fact is, all living and witnessing for Jesus is done in a spiritually hostile environment. A spiritually hostile environment. And at some point, that hostility becomes focused and deliberate. It pursues God's people. This is the reality of persecution. So Jesus wants his disciples to know that this is the reality of their following him and stepping out on mission for him. Then he also gives them a reason, the reason behind this persecution. And in a sense, the reason seems obvious. We just talked about it. Jesus' disciples are going to a spiritually hostile world with a message that the world doesn't want to hear. You know what it's like when you receive a message that, that you don't want to hear? You react badly. That's kind of the reason for it on one level. But there's another more fundamental reason for the existence of this persecution, and that is simply Jesus himself. It's Jesus himself and our connection with him. As Jesus says in verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher or a slave above his master. It's enough for a disciple to become like his teacher and a slave like his master. If they called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they do the members of his household? The hostility of the world towards Jesus is fundamentally 
towards Jesus' disciples is fundamentally a hostility by association. When I was at high school, hostile is a strong word. When I was at high school, I strongly disliked the local private boys' school, St. Pat Strathfield. And it wasn't all at all rational, it wasn't at all mature, but if I met a boy from St. Pat's, I instantly disliked him. I disliked him by association. And if a St. Pat's student did something good that maybe made the local paper, my friends and I would come up with all sorts of alternative explanations for that, that goodness, that good deed. Well, they're just trying to raise the profile of the school to get more money. Entirely what they're about. Jesus says that sort of entrenched, reflexive hostility, that is the fundamental posture of the world towards him. And therefore it is towards those who follow him. If Jesus performed divinely loving acts like healing a man and then was hatedly called Beelzebul, the prince of demons, for doing so, that's an event that happens just before this teaching, at the end of chapter 9, then the disciples who are preaching in his name and who are acting and living like him, they can expect nothing different. They will expect the same. And this is so important. He wants his disciples to know this. You may recall Jesus' words at the Last Supper, just before the climax of his own persecution at the cross. We looked at it last year in our series in John 13 to 17. What does Jesus tell his disciples then? He says, remember the word I spoke to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. He's talking about this teaching here. He's talking about the reason for persecution. I think this is so important for us to remember because we can get caught up wondering whether or not we've been prudent enough, whether we've been shrewd enough. If only we'd been more gentle or in sharing the truth about Jesus or more clever or sophisticated, maybe we wouldn't be experiencing such open opposition. Jesus says, actually, that may not be the case at all. If you follow me simply by faithful alignment with me, if you have the privilege of being called to share in my own work and represent me, you will share in my unpopularity. These are hard truths that he is laying down for his disciples, his disciples then and his disciples now. And so with these hard truths ringing in our ears, what is the way forward? What is the way forward? The way forward is by gaining the right perspective. The right perspective on persecution. If the persecution that the disciples are likely to face is inevitable and very possibly severe, then their fear is likely to be equally as great so great that they may be attempted to abandon the mission. It's a very narrow perspective that those conditions naturally bring about. And so Jesus gives them a right perspective on it all, a greater perspective. First of all, he says they have a greater duty. They have a greater duty. In verse 26, he says, Therefore, don't be afraid of them. That sounds strange. It sounds like after everything he said, he should say, therefore, be afraid of them. But he says, therefore, don't be afraid of them since there is nothing covered that won't be uncovered and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What's he talking about? 
He's saying that the disciples have a duty to make known what they have seen and heard about who Jesus is, about what he has come to do for humankind, what he has done for humankind. And this duty, it must, it's got to override that natural reluctance not to want to bring about people's hostility. And so Jesus says explicitly in verse 27, what I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. What you hear in a whisper, proclaim on the housetops. The flat rooftops of first century Palestine houses, they used to form a natural platform for public announcements and they were used that way. Jesus says to his disciples, go to the rooftops. Proclaim publicly what I have taught you privately. That's an order. And that's why we, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing right now. That's why we preach the Bible publicly in church each week. That's why we encourage you in living out your faith, not just to live a godly life, which moves people to question, why does that person treat me that way or or act that way? But actually to speak about Jesus, to proclaim publicly what you know privately truth about who he is that is a greater duty that we have than the fear that may cripple us but speaking of fear a second perspective that jesus gives his disciples a greater one is that they actually have a greater fear which might sound strange a greater fear jesus says in verse 28 don't fear those who kill the body but are not able to kill the soul rather Fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Once when I worked at Subway, back in year 11, not long after I'd become a Christian, I found myself in a conversation with my workmate as we were packing up. It was just the two of us. It was 10 o'clock at night or something. We were talking about religion and God and he was from a nominally Catholic background. It was a very nice conversation as we were doing stuff. But at one point I asked him, in what was perhaps a moment of misguided evangelistic inspiration, I said, yeah, but do you fear God? Do you fear God? Well, maybe you can imagine, but my workmate suddenly became very agitated, very agitated at that very notion, at the very idea of that. And the conversation was ended abruptly. We just went back to our work. We understandably shy away from talk of fearing God. We think of fear as the response to people or situations that, that simply want to harm us. It's, it's just plain bad. And there is that whole dimension to fear. There is truth to that. But when the Bible speaks of fear of God, what it means is a healthy response of awe and obedience in the face of the Almighty a healthy response of awe and obedience in the face of the Almighty. Or as a friend of mine I heard preaching once put it so well, fear of God is the acknowledgement of the gap between who we inherently are and who God inherently is. It's the acknowledgement of the gap between who we inherently are and who God inherently is. That's what I was very clumsily trying to convey to my workmate all those years ago. And Jesus is saying that the various kinds of human opponents, they fade into insignificance before the one who has the ultimate say over things.
He says you need to have that perspective. Compared with the eternal fate which awaits those who reject God, facing the worst that people can do to you is actually a far less fearful prospect. When you find yourself afraid, and don't tell me you don't, because I find myself afraid all the time about what people will say or even do to you when you share Jesus with them, do you have that perspective? Do you have that greater fear? But as a final perspective raiser, Jesus very quickly tempers the greater fear by telling them about a final, greater thing. And it's a greater care that they experience. He reminds his disciples that God isn't just the Almighty. He's also the Father. He's their Father. The Father who loves and who cares for them. The Father who knows about and who controls the destiny of all things, even almost worthless sparrows, you know, birds that are sold in the market for just a penny. As for you, those made in God's image, those called to faith in Jesus, you are worth more than many sparrows. God has numbered the hairs on your head. We lose hair, we don't even think about it. Well, maybe some of us think about it, but we don't think about it. God has numbered each one of those. Jesus' point is that God shows such care to his creation, even the seemingly least of it. How much more will he care for you, the apostles of his son? You have a greater care. You have a greater fear. And you have a greater duty. Let that perspective give you guidance when you're feeling like you want to succumb to the fear of what people may say and do in response to your sharing Jesus with them. Jesus' message to his disciples as he sends them out on mission and to us who undertake his ongoing mission today is that persecution is real. It's real and it's inevitable. It comes from just being, by trusting Jesus, let alone speaking for him. These are sobering truths. But there is hope here. One is that persecution is not ultimate. God is. I think a final thing that we need to acknowledge is that while this does mean that technically there is no such thing as the persecuted church and the non-persecuted church, it does not mean that persecution is experienced equally as intensely by every Christian believer at all times throughout the world. It would be a grave disservice to our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world for us to claim persecution is so strong and targeted when, when they are living with a severity of persecution we can scarcely think about. And so we should make sure that we stay informed about, about their plight and we should uphold them in prayer and whatever support we can give individually and as a church. There are two organisations, there are several organisations, but there are two organisations in particular that help us do that. One of them you may have heard of is called the Voice of the Martyrs. One of the main things they do is simply tell stories. They give voice to the persecutions suffered by our sisters and brothers in other parts of the world so that we can pray for them 
and that if we can find a way to support them, then we can do that. And there's also open doors. In particular, they provide advocacy. They argue the case for Christian believers in parts of the world where they are actively targeted. They offer support. And you can support them by going to the website and finding out the ways you can do that. You can support them by prayer. They have a thing called the World Watch List. Every year, they've got a number of criteria that helps them determine where the most persecuted Christian believers are. You can see it represented on that map, the various intensities of red to yellow. So we can pray for those believers. If you want more information, you can speak to me. You can go to the website. It is important to acknowledge that there is that difference in our lived experience as Christian believers. But this whole subject, it's the daunting side of being called to make disciples for Jesus, isn't it? From what we read here, we know that our mission is important. But we also know that our mission is not impersonal. We have been personally called by Jesus. We matter to the Father. So take heart from that. And also take heart from Jesus' final words, which Matthew records in his final verses of his Gospel chapter 28 as Jesus sent his disciples out on mission to the world with all authority in heaven and on earth having been given to him what did he say remember I am with you always to the very end of the age as we step out on mission for Jesus we don't do it on our own we don't even do it in our own power we do it through Christ Amen.